They're even opening some of those Vegas buffet lines. Talk about a gamble. The lead starts right now. Hit the lights. Las Vegas leading the way as a new month begins and more cities fully break out of their COVID hibernation. As one expert warns, it would be a, quote, monumental error to act as though the pandemic is over. Any moment, President Biden will speak to mark one of the worst acts of racist terrorism in American history, a century since a white mob destroyed Black Wall Street and killed hundreds. Biden will commemorate this as he discusses plans to close the racial wealth gap in this country. We'll bring that to you live. Plus, an activist in Belarus stabs himself in the throat in a courtroom instead of giving false testimony. The latest horror spotlighting the brutal dictatorship there. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our health lead and a return to normalcy for millions of Americans. New COVID cases, deaths, hospitalizations, all at their lowest points since about last year. For the first time since March 2020, 14 months ago, the seven-day average is below 20,000 cases. Just a month ago, cases were around 50,000. Now, this rapid drop is in large part due to vaccinations. Half of the total U.S. population has received at least one dose. More than 40 percent are fully vaccinated. But a new study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that vaccinations alone will not stop this pandemic, even though they do reduce sickness and deaths considerably. Masks and physical distancing, experts maintain are still needed to get transmission rates down because so many millions of Americans continue to refuse to get the vaccine. So, as CNN's Alexander Field reports for us now, one expert says it would be a, quote, monumental error to think the pandemic's over. It's just the best feeling in the world to finally see this. The triumphant return of travel. I think there's a real excitement in the Dells community about having the tourists Um, come back to our town. It's what we live and breathe for. The unofficial start of summer Memorial Day weekend marked the busiest air travel stretch we've seen during the pandemic, with nearly 9 million people passing through airports. We're really seeing a a faster recovery than anticipated. I think everyone nationwide had expected about a three-year recovery um, ramp. But with the average daily number of new COVID cases dropping below 20,000 for the first time since March of 2020, more masks are coming off, more people are getting out, and incentives to get shots are ramping up. In Arkansas, starting today, a choice of a scratch-off lottery ticket or a gift certificate for a hunting and fishing license for people getting vaccinated. And in St. Petersburg, Florida, tickets to a punk band concert are going for $18 to vaccinated fans, but unvaccinated fans must pay nearly $1,000. There's 250 people who bought tickets to the show, understanding that those were the stipulations, and I think they're all going to very happily show their vaccination records so that they can come party and have a good time. Health experts are hopeful vaccine confidence could soon get a boost among the hesitant. Moderna announcing today it's applying for full FDA approval for its vaccine for people age 18 and up, following a similar announcement from Pfizer last month. Both are currently available through an emergency use authorization. The more people are vaccinated, the more protected we are. All over the world, including Japan, where a big push is on to get more shots in arms. They've started vaccinating 1,600 Olympic athletes and staff ahead of next month's Games, as the first international athletes travel from Australia. Uh, It is going to be a very different game, there's no doubt about that. For the athletes and for the fans. Spectators may have to show proof of a negative COVID test and will come only from Japan. So, Jake, even if you can't go to the Olympics in Japan this summer, you could have a chance at winning free tickets to a Knicks playoff game. That is if you get your shot here at Madison Square Garden. We should also point out that this is something of a landmark day for New York City. The city is recording a positivity rate of 0.83%. That is the lowest number we've seen since the city started keeping track. Jake? That's great news. Alexander Field in New York. Thank you so much. Sin City is also back in business. Casinos are taking down the plexiglass and entertainment venues are throwing their doors open for full occupancy events. But 
with so many folks continuing to refuse to get the vaccine and so many of these events indoors with poor ventilation, this is a high-priced gamble, as CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports. In downtown Las Vegas, a countdown to mark Sin City's comeback. And it's officially open right now, my friends. As of 12.01 a.m. today, pandemic restrictions now a thing of the past. Maskless tourists celebrating. You just have to see it in order to believe it. It feels good, though, to be back free. Hopefully everybody goes gets vaccinated and we, we back out here. For the first time in over a year, visitors rocked out to live music. <laughs> Casinos, restaurants and hotels back to full capacity. Those plexiglass dividers meant to keep gamblers safe during the pandemic officially coming down. In most places, fully vaccinated visitors can now ditch the mask and scrap social distancing. But health experts worry not everyone will play by the rules. Well, the challenge is to get people to actually wear their masks if they have not been vaccinated. It's on the honor system. And we have a lot of people coming to town who are on their first vacation in a year and a half. But for a city so reliant on tourism, it's a tricky balance. Last year, the coronavirus pandemic turned Vegas into a ghost town. Casinos were ordered to shut their doors, costing thousands of jobs and billions in lost revenue. The Vegas jobless rate shot to 33% last April from 7% in March, one of the worst in the nation. Large trade shows and conventions came to a halt. How critical are conventions to the Las Vegas economy? They're so critical that what you see on the Strip would not make sense to build without meetings and conventions as a major component of that. Conventions bring in big bucks and crucial weekday bookings, contributing more than $11 billion in 2019 alone. Next week, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority will debut its nearly $1 billion expansion to host America's first major trade show since the pandemic began. World of Concrete, uh, which is tens of thousands of people, will be here June 8th. It will be the first what we call a citywide event uh, to happen in the United States. It's an economic test where the stakes are high, even for a city accustomed to high stakes. And Jake, it certainly feels like things are coming back to normal. There's a ton of optimism here, but there's also a still long road ahead. International travel has yet to return, and that's a big missing economic piece. And we're also not out of the woods yet in terms of the pandemic. You know, another COVID-19 case surge, a new scary variant, all of that could make the Las Vegas gamble effectively backfire. Jake? All right, Lucy Kafanov in Vegas. Thank you so much. Let's discuss all this with Dr. Megan Ranney. Uh, she's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. Dr. Randy, thanks for joining us. So it seems many Americans decided to essentially forget the pandemic for the Memorial Day weekend, traveling and gathering in record numbers. Um, is this still risky behavior, even though so many millions of uh, American adults and, and, and many teens, too, are, are vaccinated? Yeah, so let's start with the good news, Jake. The good news is that every one of us who is fully vaccinated is for the most part, protected against this virus. You know, as we've talked about, that's why the CDC lifted its recommendations for those of us who are fully vaccinated to mask. The trouble is, is that as you go across the United States, the percentage of folks who are fully vaccinated varies dramatically. In my home state, about 60% of us are fully vaccinated. In some states in the South and in the West, it's only around 30%. In those states, it is much riskier to be going back to normal because there's a higher percentage of folks who are not fully vaccinated and are at risk of catching this virus or potentially some of those new variants that we're seeing spread across the world. We're starting to see cases tick up in Britain among unvaccinated folks, and I'm worried that we could see the same here in states that have lower rates of vaccination. So on that subject, a new study in JAMA out today finds that vaccinations alone are clearly not going to be enough to stop the pandemic, that masks and physical distancing are still required to get transmission rates down because of so many people who are not getting vaccinated, whether it's because they refuse to or they don't have access, they don't can't figure out how to get a shot. Um, do you think that states, some states, the ones you're referring to, have gotten rid of their mask mandates too quickly? You know, it depends on how many cases of COVID they want to see. There is this attitude of it's each person out for themselves. If you get sick, it's your fault. You've had the choice to go and get a vaccine. If you didn't want it, it's on you. 
I would like to think that's not how we work as a country, that we'd look out and we take care of each other. That's where universal masking in inside locations in particular, not so much outside, but inside, really is important in stopping the spread of this virus among the vulnerable. And of course, it's worth making the point, Jake, that there are some folks who even after they are fully vaccinated may still need to mask people who are immunosuppressed, folks uh, on chemo or with other immunosuppressant diseases. They need to stay masked and we need to create a community where that's okay for them. But I am worried about those states, particularly the ones that have listed, lifted mask mandates for schools. They're putting those kids at risk. Put into context this news uh, that we read today that the Chinese government has just reported the first possible human case of a strain of bird flu. The Chinese government says the risk of large scale spread is low. Um, obviously, a lot of people are very skeptical of what the Chinese government says these days. How do you view this news? So there's two things about this. One is, is that we have a great bird flu surveillance program that is set up nationally. We didn't have that for coronavirus. So we pick up these human or animal to human transmissions really early. They happen fairly frequently. Picking up a new case, it doesn't worry me in and of itself. What's going to matter is if there's human to human transmission. The second thing, though, that this points out is even if we do vanquish COVID-19, right, and we're on track to do that within the United States, if we do get vaccines out to the rest of the world, we'll be in a better situation. Even if we do make COVID-19 just a low-grade infection that kind of springs up during the winters, then goes away other times, there will be other infectious pandemics. And it may not be this one, this bird flu, but there will be others in the future. And so I hope we've learned our lessons from the last year and a half and set up better systems to protect us the next time around. Don't throw out your masks. Dr. Megan Ranney, thanks so much. Appreciate it. President Biden speaking any moment, marking one of the worst racist massacres in American history. He also will be presenting plans to help with the healing 100 years later. Stay with us. President Biden about to take the stage. There he is at the dais speaking in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a speech marking 100 years since the deadly racist attack of Tulsa. Let's listen in. I'm not sure who he's talking to there. Some kids, it looked like. President Biden about to commemorate the 100 years since that racist attack. Two girls got ice cream when this is over. <laughs> Imagine how excited you'd be when you're four, five? Almost five. Almost five years old. Come in to hear a president speak. <laughs> my Lord. In my faith, we call that purgatory. <laughs> Lauren, thank you for that gracious introduction. And uh, in case you were wondering, I, uh, in Delaware, we were a small state. We have the eighth largest black population in America, and we have one of the most talented members of Congress. And so if I didn't walk around and pay my tribute to Lisa Blunt Rochester, my congresswoman, immediately, that was... How are you, Rev? Good to see you. We've got a distinguished group of people here, and, uh, and I want to thank Lauren for sharing the powerful story, uh, and for helping uh, the country understand what's happening here. And to all the descendants here today, and to the community and civil rights leaders and members of the Congressional Black Caucus that are here, thank you for making sure we all remember and we never forget. You know, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. It is, uh, I just uh, toured the Hall of Survivors here in Greenwood Cultural Center. And I want to thank the incredible staff for hosting us here. And I mean that sincerely, thank you. And if I didn't say what my father would insist on, please excuse my back, I apologize. But the tour, in the tour, I met Mother Randall, 
who's only uh, 56 years old. Uh, God love her. And Mother Fletcher, who's uh, 67 years old. And her brother, her brother, Van Ellis, who's 100 years old. And he looks like he's 60. Thank you for spending so much time with me. I really mean it. It was a great honor, a genuine honor. You are the three known remaining survivors of a story seen in the mirror dimly. But no longer. Now your story will be known in full view. The events we speak of today took place 100 years ago. And yet, I'm the first president in 100 years ever to come to Tulsa. And this I say that not as a compliment about me, but to think about it. A hundred years and the first president to be here during that entire time. And in this place, in this ground, to acknowledge the truth of what took place here. For much too long, the history of what took place here was told in silence, cloaked in darkness. But just because history is silent, it doesn't mean that it did not take place. And while darkness can hide much, it erases nothing. It erases nothing. Some injustices are so heinous, so horrific, so grievous, they can't be buried, no matter how hard people try. And so it is here. Only, only with truth can come healing, and justice and repair, only with truth, facing it. But that isn't enough. First, we have to see, hear, and give respect to Mother Randall, Mother Fletcher, and Mr. Van Ellis. lost so many years ago, to all the descendants of those who suffered, to this community. That's why we're here, to shine a light, to make sure America knows the story in full. May 1921, formerly enslaved black people and their descendants are here in Tulsa, a boomtown of oil and opportunity in a new frontier. On the north side, across the rail tracks that divided the city already segregated by law, they built something of their own, worthy, worthy of their talent and their ambition. Greenwood, a community, a way of life. Black doctors and lawyers, pastors, teachers, running hospitals, law practices, libraries, churches, schools. Black veterans like the man I had the privilege of giving a command coin to, who fought, volunteered, and fought and came home and still faced such prejudice. <laughs> Veterans have been back a few years helping after when the First World War, building a new life back home with pride and confidence. For a mom and there were at the time mom and black, mom and, and pop black diners, grocery stores, barber shops, tailors, the things that make up a community. At the Dreamland Theater, a young black couple holding hands, falling in love. Friends gathered at music clubs and pool halls, at the Monroe family roller skating rink, visitors staying in hotels like the Stratford. All around, black pride shared by the professional class and the working class who lived together side by side for blocks on end. Mother Randall was just six years old, six years old, living with her grandma. She said she was lucky to have a home and toys and fortunate to live without fear. Mother Fletcher, 
was seven years old, second of seven children, the youngest being Mr. Van Ellis, who was just a few months old. The children, former sharecroppers, when they went to bed at night in Greenwood, Mother Fletcher says, they fell asleep rich in terms of the wealth, not real wealth, but a different wealth, a wealth in culture and community and heritage. But one night, one night changed everything. Everything changed. While Green was a, was a community to itself, it was not separated from the outside. It wasn't everyone, but there was enough hate, resentment, and vengeance in the community. Enough people who believed that America does not belong to everyone and not everyone is created equal. Native Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Black Americans, a belief enforced by law, by badge, by hood, and by noose that speaks to that lit the fuse. It lit it by the spark that it provided. A fuse of fury was an innocent interaction that turned into an a terrible, terrible headline allegation of a black male teenager attacking a white female teenager. A white mob of a thousand gathered around the courthouse where the black teenager is being held, ready to do what still occurred, lynch that young man that night. But 75 black men, including black veterans, arrived to stand guard. Words were exchanged, then a scuffle, then a shots fired. Hell was unleashed. Literal hell was unleashed. Through the night and into the morning, the mob terrorized Greenwood, torches and guns, shooting at will. A mob tied a black man by the waist to the back of their truck with his head banging along the pavement as they drove off. A murdered black family draped over the fence of their home outside. An elderly couple knelt by their bed praying to God with their heart and their soul when there was shot in the back of their heads. Private planes, private planes dropping explosives. The first and only domestic aerial assault of its kind on an American city here in Tulsa. Eight of Greenwood's nearly two dozen churches burned like Mount Zion across the street at Vernon AME. Mother Randall said it was like a war. Mother Fletcher says all these years later, she still sees black bodies around. The Greenwood newspaper publisher, A.J. Smitherton, excuse me, Smitherman, penned a poem of what he heard and felt that night. And here's the poem. He said, kill them, burn them, set the pace, teach them how to keep their place. Reign of murder, theft and plunder was the order of the night. That's what he remembers in the poem that he wrote. 100 years ago, at this hour, on this first day of June, smoke dark in the Tulsa sky, rising from 35 blocks of Greenwood that were left in ash and ember, raised in rubble. Less than 24 hours, in less than 24 hours, 1,100 black homes and businesses were lost. Insurance companies, they had insurance, many of them, rejected claims of damage. 10,000 people were left destitute and homeless, placed in internment camps. As I was told today, they were told, don't you mention you were ever in a camp or we'll come and get you. That's the survivors told me. Yet no one, no arrest of the mob were made, none. No proper accounting of the dead. The death toll records my local officials said there were 36 people. That's all, 36 people. Based on studies, records, and accounts, 
the likelihood, the likely number is much more than the multiple of hundreds. Untold bodies dumped into mass graves. Families who at a time waited for hours and days to know the fate of their loved ones are now descendants who have gone 100 years without cloture. But you know, as we speak, the process, the process of exhuming the unmarked graves has started. And at this moment, I'd like to pause for a moment of silence for the fathers, the mothers, the sisters, sons and daughters, friends of God and Greenwood. They deserve the dignity and they deserve our respect. May their souls rest in peace. My fellow Americans, this was not a riot. This was a massacre. in our history, but not the only one. And for too long, forgotten by our history. As soon as it happened, there was a clear effort to erase it from our memory, our collective memories, from the news and everyday conversations. For a long time, schools in Tulsa didn't even teach it, let alone schools elsewhere. And most people didn't realize that a century ago, the second Ku Klux Klan had been founded. The second Ku Klux Klan had been founded. A friend of mine, John Meacham, I had written when I said I was running to restore the soul of America. He wrote a book called The Soul of America, not because of what I said. And there's a picture about page 160 in the book showing over 30,000 Ku Klux Klan members in full regalia, Reverend, Pointed hats, the robes, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Jesse, you know all about this. Washington, Washington D.C. If my memory is correct, there were 37 members of the House of Representatives who were open members of the Klan. There were five, if I'm not mistaken, could have been seven, I think it was five, members of the United States Senate, open members of the Klan. Multiple governors were open members of the Klan. Most people didn't realize that a century ago, the Klan was founded just six years before the horrific destruction here in Tulsa. And one of the reasons why it was founded was because of guys like me who are Catholic. It wasn't about African Americans then. It was about making sure that all those Polish and Irish, and Italian, and Eastern European Catholics who came to the United States after World War I would not pollute Christianity. The flames from those burning crosses torched every region, every region of the country. Millions of white Americans belonged to the Klan, and they weren't even embarrassed by it. They were proud of it. And that hate became embedded systematically and systemically in our laws and our culture. We do ourselves no favors by pretending none of this ever happened or it doesn't impact us today because it does still impact us today. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know and not what we should know. should know the good, the bad, everything. That's what great nations do. 
They come to terms with their dark sides. And we're a great nation. The only way to build a common ground is to truly repair and to rebuild. I come here to help fill the silence. Because in silence, wounds deepen. And only as painful as it is, only in remembrance do wounds heal. We just have to choose to remember. We memorialize what happened here in Tulsa. So it can be, so it can't be erased. We know here, in this hallowed place, we simply can't bury pain and trauma forever. And at some point, there'll be a reckoning, an inflection point, like we're facing right now as a nation. What many people hadn't seen before, or, hard, or simply refused to see, cannot be ignored any longer. You see it in so many places. And there's greater recognition that for too long, we've allowed a narrowed, cramped view of the promise of this nation to fester. The view that America is a zero-sum game, where there's only one winner. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get a job, I lose mine. And maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. Instead of, if you do well, we all do well. We see that in Greenwood. This story isn't about the loss of life, but the, a loss of living, of wealth and posterity and possibilities that still reverberates today. Mother Fletcher talks about how she was the only able to attend school in the fourth grade and eventually found work in the shipyards as a domestic worker. Mr. Van Ellis has shared how even after enlisting and serving in World War II, he still came home to struggle with a segregated America. Imagine all those hotels and dinners and mom and pop shops that could have been passed down this past hundred years. Imagine what could have been done for black families in Greenwood. Financial security and generational wealth. If you come from back lines like my, my, my family, working class, middle class families, the only way we ever able to generate any wealth was the equity in our homes. Imagine what they contributed then and what they could have contributed all these years. Imagine a thriving Greenwood in North Tulsa for the last hundred years what that would have meant for all of Tulsa, including the white community. While the people of Greenwood rebuilt again in the years after the massacre, it didn't last. Eventually, neighborhoods were redlined on maps, locking black Tulsa out of home ownerships. A highway was built right through the heart of the community. At least I was talking about our west side, what 95 did after we were occupied by the military, after Dr. King was murdered. The community, cutting off black families and business from jobs and opportunity. Chronic underinvestment from state and federal governments denied Greenwood even just a chance of rebuilding. We must find the courage to change the things we know we can change. That's what Vice President Harris and I are focused on, along with our entire administration, including our Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Marsha Fudge, who's here today. Because today, we're announcing two expanded efforts targeted toward black wealth creation that will also help the entire community. The first is my administration has launched an aggressive effort to combat racial discrimination in housing. That includes everything from redlining to the cruel fact that a home owned by a black family is too often appraised at lower value than a similar home owned by a white family. And I might add, and I need help if you have answered this one, I can't figure this one out. 
Congressman Horsford. But if you live in a black community and there's another one on the other side of the highway, it's a white community, it's built by the same builder, and you have a better driving record than the guy with the same car in the white community, you're getting paid more for your auto insurance. Shockingly, the percentage of black American homeownership is lower today in America than when the Fair Housing Act was passed more than 50 years ago. Lower today. That's wrong. And we're committed to changing that. Just imagine if instead of denying millions of Americans the ability to own their own home and build generational wealth, we made it possible for them to buy a home and build equity into that, into that home and provide for their families. Second, small businesses are the engines of our economy and the glue of our communities. At, as president, my administration oversees hundreds of billions of dollars in federal contracts for everything from refurbishing decks of aircraft carriers or installing railings in federal buildings to professional services. We have a thing called, I won't go into it all, but there's not enough time now, but I'm determined to use every taxpayer's dollar that is assigned to me to spend going to American companies and American workers to build, that build American products. And as part of that, I'm going to increase the share of the dollars the federal government spends to small disadvantaged businesses, including black and brown small businesses. Right now it calls for 10 percent. I'm going to move that to 15 percent of every dollar spent will be spent for more. I have authority to do that. Just imagine if instead of denying millions of entrepreneurs the ability to access capital and, and, and contracting, we made it possible to take their dreams to the marketplace to create jobs and invest in our communities. That, the data shows young black entrepreneurs are just as capable of succeeding given the chance as white entrepreneurs are. But they don't have lawyers, they don't have, they, they, they don't have accountants, but they have great ideas. Does anyone doubt this whole nation would be better off from the investments those people make? And I promise you, that's why I set up the National Small Business Administration that's much broader, because they're going to get those loans. Instead of consigning millions of American children to under-resourced schools, let's get each and every child three and four years old access to school, not daycare, school. In the last 10 years, studies have been done by all the great universities. It shows that it increased by 56% the possibility of a child, no matter what background they come from, no matter what. If they start school at three years old, they have a 56% chance of going all through all 12 years without any trouble and being able to do well. And a chance to learn and grow and thrive in a school and throughout their lives. And let's unlock more than an incredible creativity and innovation that will come from the nation's historically backed colleges and universities. Yeah. No, I have a $5 billion a year program giving them the resources to invest in research centers and laboratories and high demand fields to compete for good paying jobs in industries like, of the future like cybersecurity. The reason why they don't, their, their students are equally able to learn as well and get the good paying jobs that start at 90 and 100,000 bucks. But they don't have they don't have the back they don't have the money to provide and build those laboratories. So guess what? They're going to get the money to build those laboratories. So instead of just talking about infrastructure, let's get about the uh, uh, about the business of actually rebuilding roads and highways, filling the sidewalks and cracks, installing streetlights and high-speed internet, creating space space to live and work and play safely. Let's ensure access to health care, clean water, clean air, nearby grocery stores, stocked with fresh vegetables and food that they in fact deal with. I mean, these are all things we can do. Does anyone doubt this whole nation will be better off with these investments? The rich will be just as well off. The middle class will do better and everybody will do better. It's about good paying jobs, financial stability being able to build some generational wealth. It's about economic growth for our country. 
and outcompeting the rest of the world, which is now outcompeting us. But just as fundamental as any of these investments I've discussed, this may be the most fundamental. The right to vote. The right to vote. A lot of the members of the Black Caucus knew John Lewis better than I did, but I knew him. On his deathbed, like many of I called John to speak to him. Rev, all John wanted to do was talk about how I was doing. He died, I think, about uh, 25 hours later. But you know what John said? He called the right to vote precious, almost sacred. He said the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have in a democratic society. This sacred right is under assault with incredible intensity like I've never seen, even though I got started as a public defender and a civil rights lawyer. With an intensity and aggressiveness that we've not seen in a long, long time. It's simply un-American. It's not, however, sadly, unprecedented. The creed, we shall overcome. Is a longtime mainstay of the civil rights movement, as Jesse Jackson can tell you better than anybody. The obstacle to, process, to progress that have to be overcome are a constant challenge. We saw it in the 60s. But with the current assault, is not just an echo of a distant history. In 2020, we faced a tireless assault on the right to vote. Restrictive laws, lawsuits, threats to, of intimidation, voter purges, and more. We resolved to overcome it all, and we did. More Americans voted in the last election than any, in the midst of a pandemic, than any election in American history. You got voters registered. You got voters to the polls. The rule of law held. Democracy prevailed. We overcame. But today, let me be unequivocal. I've been engaged in this work my whole career. And we're going to be ramping up our efforts to overcome again. I will have more to say about this at a later date, the truly unprecedented assault on our democracy, an effort to replace nonpartisan election administrators and to intimidate those charged with tallying and reporting the election results. But today, as for the act of voting itself, I urge voting rights groups in this country to begin to redouble their efforts now to register and educate voters. And in June, in June should be a month of action on Capitol Hill. I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. But we're not giving up. Earlier this year, the House of Representatives passed for the People Act to protect our democracy. The Senate will take it up later this month, and I'm going to fight like heck with every tool in my disposal for its passage. The House is also working in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is, which is critical to providing new legal tools to combat the new assault on the right to vote. To signify the importance of our efforts, today I'm asking Vice President Harris to help these efforts and lead them among her many other responsibilities. With her leadership and your support, we're going to overcome again, I promise you. But it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. And finally, we have to, and finally, we must address what remains the stain on the soul of America. What happened in Greenwood was an act of hate and domestic terrorism with the through line that exists today still. Yes. Just close your eyes. Remember what you saw in Charlottesville four years ago on television. Neo-Nazis, white supremacists, the KKK, coming out of those fields at night, Virginia, with lighted torches, the veins bulging on their, as they were screaming. Remember, just close your eyes and picture what it was. Well, Mother Fletcher said when she saw the insurrection at the Capitol on January the 9th, it broke her heart. A mob of violent white extremists, 
thugs. Said reminded her of what happened here in Greenwood 100 years ago. Look around at the various hate crimes against Asian Americans and Jewish Americans. Hate that never goes away. Hate only hides. Jesse, I think I mentioned this to you. I thought after you guys pushed through with Dr. King, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, I thought we moved. What I didn't realize, I thought we had made enormous progress, and I was so proud to be a little part of it. But you know what, Rev? I didn't realize hate's never defeated. It only hides. It hides. And given a little bit of oxygen, just a little bit of oxygen by its leaders, it comes out of there from under the rock like it was happening again, as if it never went away. And so, folks, we can't. We must not give hate a safe harbor. As I said in my address to the joint session of Congress, according to the intelligence community, terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. Not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda, white supremacists. That's not me. That's the intelligence community under both Trump and under my administration. Two weeks ago, I signed into law the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which the House had passed and the Senate. My administration will soon lay out our broader strategy to counter domestic terrorism and the violence driven by the most heinous hate crimes and other forms of bigotry. But I'm going to close where I started. To Mother Randall, Mother Fletcher, Mr. Van Ellis, to the descendants and to all survivors, thank you. Thank you for giving me the honor of being able to spend some time with you earlier today. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your commitment. And thank your children and your grandchildren and your uncle and your nieces and your nephews. To see and learn from you is a gift, a genuine gift. Dr. John Hope Franklin, one of America's greatest historians, Tulsa's proud son, whose father was a Greenwood survivor, said, and I quote, Whatever you do, it must be done in the spirit of goodwill and mutual respect and even love. How else can we overcome the past and be worthy of our forebears and face the future with confidence and with hope? On this sacred and solemn day, may we find that distinctly Greenwood spirit that defines the American spirit, a spirit that gives me so much confidence and hope for the future, that helps us see face-to-face a spirit that helps us know fully who we are and who we can be as a people and as a nation. I've never been more optimistic about the future than I am today. I mean that. The reason is because of this new generation of young people. They're the best educated, They're the least prejudiced, the most open generation in American history. And although I have no scientific basis I'm about to say, but those of you who are over 50, how often did you ever see, how often did you ever see advertisements on television with black and white couples? Not a joke. I challenge you, find today when you turn on the stations sit on one station for two hours, and I don't know how many commercials you'll see, lay eight to five. Two to three out of five have mixed-race couples in them. That's not by accident. They're selling soap, man. (laughs) Not a joke. Remember old Pat Cadell used to say, you want to know what's happening in American culture? Watch advertising. Because they want to sell what they have. We have hope in folks like you, honey. I really mean it. We have hope, but we've got to give them support. We have got to give them the backbone to do what we know has to be done. Because I doubt whether any of you would be here if you didn't care deeply about this. You're sure the devil didn't come to hear me speak. (laughs) But I really mean it. I really mean it. Let's not give up, man. Let's not give up. 
As the old saying goes, hope springs eternal. I know we've talked a lot about famous people, but I'm uh, my colleagues in the Senate used to always kid me because I was always quoting Irish poets. They think I did it because I'm Irish. They think I did it because as we Irish, we have a little chip on our shoulder a little bit sometimes. That's not why I did it. I did it because they're the best poets in the world. <laughs> you can smile. It's okay. It's true. There's a famous poet who wrote a poem called The Curate Troy, Seamus Heaney. And there's a stanza in it, I think, is the definition of what I think should be our call today for young people. He said, history teaches us not to hope on this side of the grave, but then, once in a lifetime, that long-for tidal wave of justice rises up and hope and history rhyme. Let's make it rhyme. Thank you. You've been listening to President Joe Biden speaking in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to mark 100 years since the city's deadly racist massacre against the black population of Tulsa. President Biden noted he's the first president in the last century to visit the city and acknowledge the horrors of that day when a white mob descended on a prosperous Tulsa neighborhood known as Black Wall Street, robbing and killing hundreds of black residents looting and burning down entire city blocks. CNN's Abby Phillip is live in Tulsa for CNN. And Abby, President Biden, he said he he thinks this is an inflection point for the U.S., uh, saying what some people refuse to see cannot be ignored anymore. Yeah, he said great nations uh, confront their history. And I think that's exactly what this uh, visit was all about. The highest office in the land acknowledging for the first time what happened here in Tulsa. And, you know, it's not just that there were individuals who perpetrated uh, violence and, and crimes here a hundred years ago. One of the things that black Tulsans talk about all the time was that uh, there was a, a, almost a state sanction of, of, of the massacre. Uh, Fire, height, fire uh, departments that didn't come out to take out fires, uh, the National Guard that was involved, planes that rained down fire on this community. And so to acknowledge that from President Biden, I think is very, very significant here. He also uh, spoke uh, at length about the three uh, remaining survivors who experienced and witnessed that massacre. Uh, all of this in an effort to say uh, this is not, not the time to erase this kind of history, especially at a time when we've been discussing as a nation. Uh, what is the true history of this country? Biden making it clear today that he believes that this is the part of our history that we need to remember and recount in order to uh, never have something like this happen again. And Abby, uh, President Biden also used the speech to detail some new policies he's rolling out in an attempt to, to close the racial wealth gap. Uh, that's right. Uh, you know, as where I stand right now, you can see behind me, most of what is behind me would have been Greenwood 100 years ago. Black owned, prosperous. Now uh, it's being redeveloped, but being redeveloped by mostly white businesses. Black businesses own nothing in Greenwood today. And one of the things that Biden was talking about was trying to reinvest in black businesses, uh, reinvest in black communities. But starting with the federal government, the uh, federal government has an enormous amount of purchasing power. He said, he would increase by 50 percent uh, the contracts that are given to minority-owned businesses. Uh, he also talked about proposals that would uh, reinvest in black communities in infrastructure and in transportation. Now, uh, uh, Jake, some of these proposals are going to require congressional approval. They're uh, part of his American Jobs Plan that has not been approved by Congress, but it's part of uh, what the White House is trying to, uh, to talk about today, which is not just what happened 100 years ago here in Tulsa, but in the 100 years in that time, uh, there were decades and decades of systemic racism, policies that were put in place by governments and cities uh, that made it impossible for black people and black families to own and accumulate wealth. And some of the proposals are designed to rectify that, although many people say much, much more needs to be done. All right, Abby Phillip in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us 
uh, now to discuss global human rights leader Martin Luther King III and professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University, Cornell West. Thanks to both of you uh, for joining on joining us uh, this on this august day. Uh, Mr. King, let me start with you. Your reaction to what you just heard from President Biden. Well, I think the president's speech was was very genuine and the goals uh, are appropriate. But as has been said, there's a tremendous amount of work that has to be done because of uh, the vestiges of racism. What happened in 1921 and, and, and other areas? I mean, this is significant to focus on Oklahoma today. But, you know, around the same time, you had Rosewood in Florida, you had Okoye in Florida, and many incidents throughout uh, the years that have occurred over and over again. So the question is, maybe we need to be talking about reparations today uh, as uh, as a discussion point. I know there's a commission in place. And I think because Americans don't know this history, uh, maybe there's been resistance. But I think the more and more that history is revealed, because the people who do not remember their history are, in fact, doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. But this history has been buried. Uh, so today it is being revealed more and more. Uh, Dr. West, for people who may not understand the significance of the Tulsa massacre, and quite frankly, I did not learn it when I was in grade school or junior high or high school or college. Uh, can you explain why it's so important for a sitting U.S. president to visit Tulsa, memorialize the victims, and clarify that it wasn't a race riot, it was a racist massacre? Absolutely, though, brother. In fact, it was a barbaric moment in the 400 years war against black people. So that brother Martin is absolutely right. We could talk about Wilmington 1898, Atlanta 1906, Springfield 1908, Atlanta, Arkansas 1919, all the way up to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd Jr. I think what, what brother Biden did was at least he cast a limelight. And I'm glad to see that. But if he doesn't understand this as a barbaric moment in a 400-year war against black folks psychically, politically, socially, educationally, and also militarily, then he can't conclude that America's, uh, when he says America's not a racist nation, his speech just under, undercut that. When he says we don't have enough black home ownership, well, it was his support Wall Street that led toward the decline in black ownership in 2008. He's got to take responsibility for his own history or he's living in denial. And if he thinks that business loans and dealing with housing is going to be enough to deal with the depths and the breadth of black suffering, the poverty, the inadequate education, not enough health access to health care, then, you know, he's playing the flute and we need to hear the whole symphony. So it's good for him to be in Tulsa. As you know, I, I, I was born in Tulsa. I was born in Greenwood. So it's a going home. And I'm glad he's there. But we don't need just another pretty speech that hides and conceals the depth of the suffering. He's got to realize America's not just racist, but it's also one that reinforces a poverty, psychic and economic, that's bombarding black people and others as well. William Barber's understands this. Brother Martin King III understands this. I know Jesse's there. He understands this. We've got to hit this head on, my brother. So, Mr. King, the president, uh, as Dr. West has noted, also announced uh, proposals to close the racial wealth gap. Some of those proposals include directing federal contracts to minority-owned businesses, $10 billion in community revitalization funds for cities such as Greenwood. I know you talked about reparations, but but focusing on what Biden has proposed today or had had discussed today, is there a possibility for, for real progress here? Well, there's a, a, pro, a, a possibility for a start of real progress. Uh, when you talk about the length and breadth of what has to be done, it is beyond monumental. And so, yes, this is a, this is a, a, a start. But, you know, the fact is, even when we talk about minority, you know, what is that defined to? That does not necessarily mean just black folk. Um, so, you know, historically, in fact, minority businesses, disadvantaged businesses were also women businesses. And during the time when we had these programs, significantly, a lot of women businesses who happened to be owned by white women, which is good for white women, but 
you know, we're talking about what's happened to black folks specifically. Uh, we also, by the way, need to be talking about the most important or the first people who were here, our Native American brothers and sisters who have been dramatically dis, uh, dis, mistreated, almost wiped off the planet. So we got a lot of work to do in this nation that we call home, which can do the work if we choose to. And people are ready and, and, and able, and the system is there. But we got a long way to go. Dr. West, the NAACP said that President Biden's plans fall short, uh, at least in part because he does not address student loan debt and how that affects black Americans. Do you agree? What do you think? Well, I think that's true, but it's, uh, but it's not just student loans. Brother. We need massive investment in poor and working people across the board such that people can shape their destinies. And how do you do it? By assets the capital, access to money, access to status, access to respect. Brother Martin's magnificent father and mother too, uh, they call for revolution, a revolution in priorities, a revolution in what you focus on, the least of these. Don't begin with Wall Street and then come with an afterthought. Here's a little loan here. Here's a little X there. No, we need a revolution in our priorities. We need a revolution in how we look at the world. You got to look at the world through the lenses of Sister Randall. That's why Sister Randall talked about it as a war and, and, and mm-hmm. even as opposed to just an isolated moment of massacre. And when you understand it as a war, you know there's a structure, there's a system in place. That's what makes America deeply racist. It's system. It's not just Biden friends who like Negroes. So you have to view the world through a different set of lens in that way. And, and, and I think if we move in that direction, as Brother Martin has, has noted already, then I think we, we've got some good reason to be, uh, to be hopeful. Dr. Cornell West, Martin Luther King III, thanks to both of you. An honor to have you on. Thank you. Let's discuss uh, here in panel uh, more about the politics of this, I think, than about the significance of it, although you've certainly heard uh, uh, views, very strong views expressed not only about the nature of how racist America is from Dr. Cornell West, but also uh, how paltry this was to him and to, and to Mr. King uh, in terms of what they think needs to be um, done. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about, you know, there's this thing called the Overton window, the, how, how things become more and more acceptable to talk about. Reparations a decade ago, nobody was talking about it. Then ta Coates wrote that piece for The Atlantic, and now it's mentioned as a conversation point. I think it's fair to say Joe Biden's one of the most progressive uh, presidents ever. Right. Um, but still, you hear from strong progressives like West and King, and he's nowhere near where they want him to be. Right. And that's the really difficult position that Joe Biden finds himself in and so many policies, but especially this one. And I thought the NAACP criticism uh, coming out last night ahead of this big, really important symbolic day and one of the most important speeches that Biden has given so far, so striking because they're saying that uh, that the Biden administration has not gone so far as to really help close the racial wealth gap by not uh, canceling student loan debt altogether. But we know that's a line that so far President Biden hasn't been willing to cross. He told the New York Times just a couple weeks ago that he just does not support that idea and underscored that again this week. But also just kind of listening to that speech and stepping back, it shows you the limits of uh, President Biden on, you know, both ends of his party, because not only is he getting progressive or criticism from progressives for not going far enough, but he specifically called out two members of his own party that vote uh, fairly uh, at a regular clip with Republicans, um, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, even though she did or he didn't name them by name, who are um, an impediment to a lot of the Biden administration's agenda. So it was really interesting to see that political dy- dynamic that the president is facing right now. Including some of the policies that he discussed during the speech. I mean, some of the agenda items that we're talking about, especially when it comes to racial equity, they're in his infrastructure plan. That's still being discussed on the Hill. That has not passed yet. Um, He talked about how even after this massacre, uh, there was a high rise that rises in Greenwood at that time uh, that, you know, fuels some of the disparities in the area. Um, So 
And part of his infrastructure plan also would, you know, basically dedicate millions towards projects like that, either to reconnect those communities uh, uh, or try and push back against some of the projects that fueled some of the segregation that we've seen in decades. Now, again, that's still in Congress. Um, it, It seemed like also this wasn't just an opportunity to, you know, recognize and make up for some of the lost time. Um, to recognize one of the more severe atrocities in U.S. history. But also, as you were saying, it was a selling point to sell the infrastructure plan, also discuss what his national security officials are doing in terms of white supremacy uh, and discuss voting rights as well, which we know there's movement to restrict those voting rights. And it is all on a continuum, though. I mean, you know, this massacre, this racist massacre, the fact that the three of us were talking uh, during the break. We did not learn about this as kids. I'm a little older than you guys, <laughs> but you didn't either. And, and, uh, and, and all the rest, the need for investment, et cetera. Thanks so much for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, the fight over new voting restrictions fueled by Donald Trump's big lie and the Republicans standing up to warn the nation democracy is in danger. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.